0: I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no excuses, you're going to get something of an actual history lesson today. This is UFOs, What to Do. The RAND Corporation, that most Cold Warish of Cold War-era institutions. If this were a generalized conspiracy podcast, we would have met them already somewhere, working in the shadows with some of the most powerful people in industry, government, and the military, and intelligence apparatuses, providing research into areas that are, perhaps, problematic from some points of view. But no, this is a UFO podcast, so it's not going to be as interesting as all that. Today, we're going to take a look, a little bit of a look, at the origins of the Rand Corporation, as well as a 1968 report produced under their authority, entitled UFOs, What to Do. Okay, so it's World War II. Imagine it's World War II. It's difficult to imagine but imagine it's it's world war ii you are let's say somebody in the air force or somebody in i was going to say a defense industry but during world war ii all industries were somewhat defense industries as our entire industrial economy got transformed and retooled to support the war effort against nazi germany and imperial japan and fascist italy um as we get to the end of the war, there is a sense that there's two things going on, kind of. One is we have to somehow flip everything back to a civilian economy. And the second thing is we have to sort of try to keep some of the the good stuff that was developed from the point of view of the defense and, and military establishments and industrial establishments. Keep some of that because we're going to have more issues in the future. What if we could sort of... Manage the economy and manage American industrial might in such a way that we could have all the consumer goods we want to sell and buy as American consumers while at the same time maintaining a sufficient degree of military readiness so we don't find ourselves in a position where we have to flip everything and sort of change gears abruptly like we did in 1941 And early 1942 one of the things about the war effort in world war ii was the degree to which it not only mobilized industry but also um thinkers and researchers from a variety of sciences from the from the the hard physical sciences biological sciences um, psychology the social sciences all of these things all these experts and researchers had work and ideas and um And and theories and, and studies that were suitable to various aspects of the war effort. And as the war comes to an end in the summer of 1945 and into the fall of 1945, there are some in the War Department who believe that it would be good to continue this kind of collaborative research and development efforts in the uh, in the in, into peacetime, which they were already figuring out in 1945, was probably not going to be entirely peaceful. The Soviets had established uh, established puppet governments in Eastern Europe as they liberated lands from Nazi Germany. The low-key civil war between nationalist and communist forces in China um, that had been going on since the 1930s. And it's sort of gone on the back burner without actually ever going away during World War II, threatened to erupt into open conflict once again. Um, it, the world was a dangerous place, continued to be a dangerous place. And unlike the immediate years following World War I, there was no sense, no sense that the United States was going to be retreating from the world stage as it did in the 1920s. The United States was there to stay uh, for more or less. So how do we, if we're defense people, make this new world of of sort of twilight struggle, uh, not quite war, not quite peace, how do we make this work? And the solution um, came or one of the solutions came from uh, the Douglas Aircraft Corporation. A a project was developed in 1945, in the autumn of 1945, um, sort of spearheaded by uh, by General Curtis LeMay and uh, commanding general of the Army Air Force, Hap Arnold. And some Douglas aircraft um, officers and executives and engineers uh, to develop ongoing research and development and collaboration between um, the defense industry and the military establishment. And from the words research and development came the sort of acronym smushed together word or phrase, Project RAND. So from 1945 to 1948, Project RAND was part of Douglas Aircraft. It was it was sort of a, a, a unit of Douglas Aircraft. In May of 1948, Project RAND is spun off, separated from Douglas Aircraft, and becomes an independent nonprofit organization called the RAND Corporation. And very quickly in the 1950s and especially into the 1960s, um, to quote the Rand Corporation website, quote, By the 1960s, Rand was bringing its trademark mode of empirical, nonpartisan, independent analysis to the study of many urgent domestic, social, and economic problems, end quote. Um, it wasn't just a defense think tank anymore. It was a think tank for um not quite the world, but certainly um, certainly the United States, a think tank that encompassed areas of interest of all sectors of the American economy and society. And since their beginnings as an independent organization in 1948, Rand has published tens of thousands of reports. One of these um, was focused on UFOs. But before we look at that, let's look at some of the, the people that Wikipedia lists as uh, notable participants in the RAND Corporation's projects. There's there's you know the the one of the founders, Hap Arnold, uh, general in the U.S. Air Force. There are a number of other people who are very influential that you've never probably heard of. Um, well, here's a guy we can't live without, Paul Barron, one of the developers of packet switching, which was used in ARPANET and later networks like the internet so one of the inventors of the foundational technologies of the internet was uh, a rand corporation f- um associate at one time um daniel ellsberg the guy who leaked the pentagon papers was a rand guy uh francis fukuyama uh the guy who wrote the uh, he's an academic and, and i think he's an economist wrote the end of history and the last man one of the uh the the, the one of those books that ends up being so totally wrong within about five years of its publication. If you've read it, you know what I mean? Um, let's see who else, who else? Um, this list, Oh, scooter Libby, um, vice president Cheney's former chief of staff. Oh uh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, uh, John Forbes, Nash, Nash, who won the Nobel prize in economics, Condoleezza rice, former, uh, secretary of state, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, Henry Kissinger, I've heard of him. William Webster was the chairman of the board of the Rand Corporation um, for a number of years from 1950. Well, a number of years, two is the number from 1959 to 1960. William Webster was... um, up until this august the chair of the homeland security advisory council he was the director of central intelligence at the end of the reagan administration and uh, the early bush administration he was the director of the fbi from 1978 to 87 and he was a uh, u.s circuit court of appeals judge Um, and he got his start uh, or not his start but he was at the rand corporation in his earlier years there's also a name on this list that is wrong, and it jumped out at me because it seemed wrong at the time, and that name is Chuck Missler, and the reason that name jumped out at me is because I know of knew of Chuck Missler as one of these um, sort of Christian UFO people who sort of defaults to the uh, the aliens or demons thing i'm i'm greatly simplifying his ideas on the thing but uh, he also was a big bible code guy back in the uh, back in the 90s and the early 2000s and it, it struck me as odd that he was at the rand corporation um but i did some looking into it and he wasn't at the rand corporation but he was um, someone who, as a computer scientist and engineer, contributed to a report in 1962 for Systems Development Corporation, which was not part of RAND, but had been part of RAND back in the 1950s. And so somebody is sort of using that to put him, uh, Chuck Missler, on the list of RAND Corporation Associates. I'm, I'm going to probably edit this Wikipedia entry to uh, to eliminate Chuck Missler from that list, but uh, I haven't yet because I've got more important things to do like talk about this ufo report so it was written by george coker k-o-c-h-e-r and uh, george coker is an astrophysicist and he composed a number of reports for rand during the 1960s and into the 1970s ufos what to do in 1968 sort of was the, the middle one of these in 1964 he contributed to um Eclipse Observations from a Jet Aircraft, and the uh, intriguingly yet boringly titled A Deep Space Triangulation Probe to Determine the Astronomical Unit. In 1970, he wrote Observations of the 1969 Inferior Conjunction and Greatest Western Elongation of Venus, Data Catalog and Preliminary Analysis for the RAND Corporation. And his final contribution to RAND was um, the distinctly unastronomical environmental problems, their causes, cures, and evolution, using Southern California smog as an example, which uh, might be the most 1971 thing I've ever read. UFOs, What to Do, is dated November 27th, 1968, and the copy I have that I'm using isn't the one linked in the show notes, uh, which goes to the RAND website. To be honest, I'm not sure where I ended up with the PDF I have, uh, for it is marked, For RAND Use Only. Do not quote or cite in external RAND publications or correspondence. It also includes examples of some correspondence from people who wrote to RAND, or the Air Force, asking about UFOs. One of these was from a William G. Lamb of Springfield, Illinois, who wrote to the Air Force. We don't know what he wrote, but he received this response from a James Aiken. I think it's Aiken. My copy's very blurry. Dear Mr. Lamb, this is in response to your inquiry of October 2nd, 1969. The RAND Corporation has never made any reports on unidentified flying objects for the United States Air Force. If any reports were made by this corporation, they were made on their own. We trust this information will be helpful. There were also two memos from RAND to unnamed entities. The first is from June 5th, 1969. We are unable to identify any RAND publications on UFOs available for external distribution. The other is from August 8th, 1969. RAND does very little research on the subject of UFOs. Therefore, no publications have been written on the subject. Now, the first one is pretty honest, if a little tricksy. Uh, No publications available for external distribution. That doesn't mean no publications exist. The second is a little more evasive. It says no publications have been written on the subject. Well, then what is this document that's on my screen from 1968? Well, this is interesting because it is labeled Rand document, not Publication. It's not a publication because it hasn't been published or made public. Look at the root of publication. Public, publication, publish. It isn't published, therefore it's not a publication. It's tricky. So why wasn't it published? That's a good question and one that has been asked so many times that Rand addresses it in the FAQ page on their website. I've heard a lot of rumors about you guys. Are any of them true? RAND works in subjects of interest to a wide range of people, and the line between fact and fiction can blur, especially with regard to our historical research. Some of the most persistent rumors include the following. RAND refused to release an important study on the existence of unidentified flying objects. Initially, we did refuse to release the UFO study, but not because it was classified or controversial. The paper was published in an internal series that was not releasable to the public because it had not been peer-reviewed. We eventually decided that the demand for the paper superseded our internal policy and posted it. Not controversial? Well, we'll be the judge of that. Coker begins his paper with a statement of what he's attempting to do and why he's attempting to do it. UFOs, unidentified flying objects, or flying saucers as they are often called, have been on the mind of the public for at least the last 22 years. For a number of reasons, we know little more about them now than we did at the outset there exists a great amount of misinformation about the phenomenon, not only in the minds of the public, but among educated groups such as scientists as well. It is the purpose of this series of essays to describe various aspects of the phenomenon, make clear my prejudices and the reasons for them, and to suggest a means of proceeding on this interesting and potentially very significant problem. So, UFOs are interesting, and people might not have the full story about them. He goes on into some depth on the term UFO, declaring that he really likes um, J. Allen Hynek's definition with some modifications of his own. Uh, Hynek's definition of a UFO was, quote, any reported aerial or surface visual sighting or radar return which remains unexplained by conventional means even after examination by competent persons. This definition specifies neither flying nor objects. So Coker is fine with this definition, but wants to replace or radar return with, or instrument observation and replace even after examination by competent persons with even after examination by qualified persons now he doesn't expand on what he believes the proper qualifications are to explain ufos but let's assume he means sciency types Following the introduction are five essays, UFOs, Historical Aspects, UFOs, Astronomical Aspects, UFOs, The Character of Reports, UFOs, Phenomenological Aspects, UFOs, How to Proceed, and Why. So, historical aspects thankfully he doesn't start in 1947 instead coker begins by detailing the sightings at fatima in portugal in 1917 citing jacques valet and brinsley Brin, i can never say this name brinsley le pur trench and also he discusses the 16th century woodcuts from nuremberg and Basel that seem to show some kind of uh, phenomenon in the sky and discusses um, the fact that carl jung mentioned these or examined these in his book on UFOs. Then, eventually, obviously, he gets into the post-1947 modern era, and it's pretty much the standard history that you know from listening to this show or reading books about this stuff. What's fun about this is that Coker was writing as the Condon Committee at the University of Colorado was doing its big UFO study in the late 1960s. And there's a sense that a lot might be riding on the outcome of the study. But even at this point, as we read this, there is a sense from Coker here that the fix might have been in on the Condon report. A series of sightings in 1965 and 1966 received considerable public attention, and after the poor public reception given the official explanations, the Air Force felt compelled to contract for a 15-month, later stretched to 18-month, scientific study to be performed at the University of Colorado under the leadership of E. U. Condon, a highly respected physicist. The Condon Committee is due to complete investigations at the end of June 1968. Its report will be reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences, presumably to validate that the study was indeed the objective pearl of the scientific method that was desired, and is expected to be made public in October of 1968. Unfortunately, the dismissal of two members of the committee in February resulted in publicity suggesting that the study was not, in fact, objective. It remains, therefore, to see the final report to determine the worth of the study. The Condon Report is going to figure into... Some things that are coming later in this, uh, in this episode as well. So keep that on your radar. And yes, at some point, I should probably do a Condon report or Condon committee episode. Ugh. So the next part, astronomical aspects. Unsurprisingly, this is pretty sciencey. So yeah, kind of over my head. The chapter is headed with a quotation from Jean Cocteau about the subject. Quote, the astonishing thing would be if they did not exist. End quote. That gives you an idea of where Coker's going with this. Basically, this chapter explores the probabilities that there are a huge number of inhabited planets that might be visiting us, given the number of stars and the, the percentage likelihood of you know stars being in the right zone for intelligent life and things like that. As to the argument that the visitation would be impossible, quote, because of the speed of light limitations of the theory of relativity. Basically, you'd never be able to go fast enough to get from one planet to another in any kind of reasonable time. Um, Coker has this to say in response. Recall that our own physical theory has been developed in only 500 years. What can we expect in the next 500? Or 1000? or million, or even billion years. I suggest that if a way to circumvent the speed of light restriction is possible, it has already been found by someone in our galaxy. I haven't the faintest idea how this might be done, and I fully agree that our own experimental data appear to accurately confirm the existence of this limitation. Basically, if it's possible to travel faster than light, then someone's put that technology or means into practice. It's logical, if not exactly provable. Next time, we delve into the world of Commander X, the semi-anonymous purveyor of recycled rumor and innuendo, and um, focal point of much of my early knowledge of the ufo field which explains a lot you can check out past episodes read some reviews of saucer related stuff and support the show at saucerlife.com. you can also support us through the link in the show notes thank you very much to those who've donated in the past it's very much appreciated we're on twitter and instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at the at gmail.com you can contact us by post at Chizo media p.o box 68 grand Blanc, michigan 484 Eight zero. The Saucer Life is available everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, I think Amazon Music Podcasts now, 7-Eleven, um, your local grocery store, used car lots, libraries, department stores, that warehouse where they put the Ark of the Covenant to the Ender Raiders of the Lost Ark the warehouse where they put the little probe in the pilot episode of the X-Files were everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Part three, or essay three, involves the character of reports. And many of the reports that he reviews and presents are from the standard sources and standard researchers. There's a number of reports from uh, Professor James McDonald, for example. But there's one case that's interesting because it's one that Coker investigated himself in Illinois near the town where he grew up. And it involved uh, a couple of sightings. The first was by a Mrs. A who was familiar to Coker's family. So he had a personal connection to her and sort of was able to say she's, you know, she's she's not making stuff up. She's not crazy. She's a regular person who had this weird sighting. Mrs. A was in her kitchen preparing supper. Five of her children were playing outdoors. The children shouted to her to come out and see the silent plane. She writes, I glanced out the south window, and there it was coming into sight just south of our 72-foot silo, moving very slowly from east to west. It was about 35 feet high. My first thought was that it was a plane making an emergency landing, but when I saw it in full view, I knew it was no plane, not like anything I've ever seen. I hurried outside to join the children in the yard. She provided a good description of the object. It appeared to be larger than our car, and was more oval. There was a bluish glow around the ends, top, and bottom of it. The glow wasn't bright, since it was daylight yet, but more like a low cloud, haze, or fog, or a mixture of bluish-gray tiny bubbles floating along around it. The object was seen clearly. It was blue in color, and appeared to be made of metal. You could see longitudinal seam lines, there was one black window. I thought they, assuming someone was in it, could see out, but we could not see them. I kept looking for someone to peep out and wave, but don't recall seeing or feeling anything at the time. There was a brownish-gold design on the lower back half. A raised part was on the top, near the back, which was noticed by all the children. It moved very quietly, making no sound at all, except for a whirling or vibrating sound for one or two seconds as it drifted on toward the west. We followed it down the yard and lane, continuing to watch it as it was 300 feet, then 200 feet from the north and south gravel road and the electric line which is on the west side of the road. We were talking together, all very excited about what it was, where it came from, if there were people in it, and if it would rise to clear the electric line. It did. It rose so quickly and was out of sight in just a few seconds. Our eyes could not follow it fast enough. This certainly was a fantastic thing. There was a second sighting later the same day by mrs b mrs b was walking down the steps of a friend's house toward her car as i started down the steps my eyes were drawn by something in the southeastern sky i stopped a moment and saw very clearly a luminous bluish object moving quite rapidly from east to west it seemed to be rather low in the sky but at night it is difficult to judge distance either as to how high it was or how far away it was it did appear larger than a full moon but instead of being round, it had a definite oval shape. I would say an elongated oval. There was no sound that I could detect, and while it appeared to be blue and purple, there was also a whitish glow to it. The outline of the object was very distinct. I watched it until it disappeared behind some trees at a house a little less than a block from me. Now, in the case of Mrs. B here, Coker acknowledges that there isn't really enough information to come to any conclusions. But in the earlier encounter from Mrs. A, he had much more confidence in what he learned. He got additional data from follow-up inquiry, on-site investigation to rule out um, any other craft or weather events or astronomical phenomenon. He said that the observations she provided and that the other witnesses provided were detailed and gave, quote, adequate confidence that some sort of machine was present and it was behaving in what he called an extraordinary way. He pointed out the quote prolate spheroidal shape and the pattern on it. Um, Although he says that she might not have been close enough to really discern a pattern as being really interesting and that the original correspondence and data, it's about 40 pages of information and that correspondence and interviews took place over a period of eight months and quote, no substantial inconsistencies could be found. So. He was he was pretty impressed with this, and he sort of says this sort of sort of focusing on her credibility, and, and sort of he also echoes uh, Dr. Hynek's observation that the best cases come from a, a combination of of strangeness of the uh, the encounter and the credibility of the witness. You put those two things together, and you've got an interesting case. Uh, this is uh, this is what he says. Acquaintances made it clear that Mrs. A is not prone to storytelling and that, quote, she is too busy to dream up such a tale, end quote. Mr. A, who returned from the fields that evening, found the household still considerably agitated four hours after the event. He said he had no idea what it was his wife and children saw, but he obviously treated the sighting seriously for he went to considerable trouble to comply with the request to measure the sizes and locations of each building and tree on the farm. And he goes on here to draw a line from this investigation in particular to the importance of the UFO phenomenon in general and the importance of of research in general. It is this kind of sighting, the kind which is clearly inexplicable in contemporary terms, which causes me and other interested persons to take the whole subject so seriously. Hynek suggests that it is just this kind of sighting that often goes unreported because the witness, especially if his education or training are appropriate, knows that what he saw was unambiguously extraordinary and machine-like. A number of such reports were belatedly made after the University of Colorado study got underway. Apparently, the witnesses waited for the respectability the study brought to the subject. It is hoped that the scientific and intellectual climate will change to the point where witnesses, particularly those having the best qualifications, can feel free to report sightings and know that they are being taken seriously. So again, things come back to the Condon Committee study as having a lot of potential to move the needle on UFO work being taken seriously by serious people, and also, honestly, kind of a uh, kind of a low key slam against NICAP and APRO as far as um, you know, entities that are taken seriously as far as the UFO subject is concerned. Now, knowing how the Condon report would end up. And if you don't know, basically the quick answer is that it basically dismissed the phenomenon as being unworthy of further structured, organized, taxpayer-funded study. So knowing that that would be the case, this is a huge sort of what-might-have-been moment. Part 4 on the phenomenological I just like saying that phenomenological aspects of UFOs is largely based on a NICAP report called the UFO evidence, which included 575 cases in, uh, investigated through uh, up through 1963. And it does things like catalog and 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 compute the, the shape of UFOs. So um, we have disc 26% round 17%. What is the difference between round and a disc? I don't know. Oval or elliptical, 13%. Cylindrical, 8.3%. Triangular, 2%. Other, such as radar, light source, or not stated, 33.7%. So that's a lot of other right there. The biggest group is other. That's um, troubling. We also get a breakdown of the color of UFOs in daytime cases, of UFO cases that had actually a color stated silver or metallic clocked in at 34.8 percent white 32 percent specular is that like i'm not sure what specular is is that like the spectrum is this rainbow ufos Whatever specular is, 13.4%. You know, I could pause recording and look it up and come back and pretend like I know what specular means, but I won't do that because 10 people will tell me on Twitter within an hour of this going up. Gray, 7.5%, black 12.3%. And the color of UFOs in nighttime cases. red 38.3, orange 15.4, yellow 17.3, green 13, blue, 16%, and purple. Zero. So why is purple there? It, just because it's a color? I, uh, anyway, um, that part of it was really kind of, the, that, was the, that was the weakest of the essays, just because it was so dull. Part five, the final part, consists of the author's recommendations on how to proceed and why. Coker has five such recommendations. The first is this organization of a central report receiving agency staffed by a permanent group of experienced ufo investigators and having on call specialists in astronomy physics optics atmospheric physics psychology and the like for application when needed basically super nightcap or super apro so how would all this work how would this be be structured that's what he gets to in point number two This agency should be readily and instantly available to the public for the purpose of reporting. Witnesses should be able to turn to someone other than the press to make reports. Report forms could be made available at post offices, for example. More urgent reports could be made by toll-free telephone lines. Because many sightings are made at night when most services are closed, the local police office should be prepared to receive reports of sightings. Experience indicates that witnesses usually turn first to the police, particularly if the UFO was close or if the witness was frightened. Such a local data center would be very useful for identifying flaps, and could possibly serve to dispatch personnel to an area of interest. Care must be taken to properly inform the officers involved about the aims of the project, and requests for assistance should be made in such a way as to minimize additional police work. An interested local scientist could then be notified, perhaps in time to make an observation. Heineck also suggests that the police carry cameras in their cars should they become involved as observers. This advice obviously applies to all interested persons. I'm going to let my inner taxpayer out for a second and ask, who exactly is going to pay for all this? Who's in charge? How is it organized? How is, I mean, who decides who qualified people are? How do you recruit these scientists? Are, scientists, are they paid? And... I'm sorry, this really sounds like you are, you know, creating additional police work. And there's a little inconsistency here, I think. Um, witnesses should be able to turn to someone other than the press to make reports. Then later, he says, experience shows us that people usually go to the police first. So which is it? Are, are, are people stuck going to the press or are they going to the police or what? So this is, um, is kind of weird. Um, it's not clear whether this is a... You know, a defense-oriented um, operation. If the Air Force is going to be ultimately in charge of this, there seems to be some kind of of you know government, you know centralized control of it because you're utilizing the post office, um, as he says. You know, f- report forms should be made available in post offices. I I actually I actually uh, don't hate that part of it, but um, th- this this sounds like a it it really does sound like like just what NICAP's doing, but bigger. Number three, a loose organization of interested scientists should be available to investigate reports in their local area. A good start toward this has been made by NICAP. It is important that investigations be made rapidly and by properly qualified people. I realize this is just a a sort of preliminary report, wasn't going to be peer-reviewed or anything, but I'm, I'm really Thinking there's some holes in this. Oh, we should, we should, we should get some, some interested scientists, you know, to investigate reports in their local areas. You know, there's a huge number of locations in the United States that don't have local scientists around. Um, scientists tend to be clustered in areas where there is science going on it is important that investigations be made rapidly and by properly qualified people well they're not going to happen rapidly if there is anything else in this supposed scientist's life that is of a higher priority than somebody's ufo sighting and you know among other things just leaving out you know sort of life things their actual job would be one of those priorities so again i'm i'm sort of asking are these scientists going to be sort of salaried investigators attached to this or is it if so you're gonna be paying them to sit around a lot waiting for a ufo sighting and if not are they paid by the case i am I'm, I'm a very boring person and i am sort of focused on the the organizational minutiae of this number four the press should be encouraged to report sightings accurately and in a non-sensational manner suitable reporting would encourage other witnesses to come forth <laughs> Good luck. Seriously though, um this is this is sounding less and less realistic with every point that is made. And as we talked about before, and as as Coker has sort of indicated, there seems to be the need for some sort of shift to take place in public thinking for all of this to be possible. And I think he's sort of got his hopes pinned on the Condon report as being the the catalyst for this kind of change. As unlikely as that seems here in 2020, 50 years later, it might not have seemed as unrealistic at the time. And finally, point number five. Existing sensor records could be examined for anomalies, particularly if visual reports are made nearby. Since we don't know what to expect, it is difficult to say what is needed. However, records of electric, magnetic and gravitational fields, radioactivity, optical and radio frequency anomalies would be a logical place to start. Radars could also contribute if they are designed for general purpose use, as it is most current radar detection and tracking devices are designed to ignore anomalous objects. Who is paying for all this? Good grief. Um who who 's paying for the time to to track all these things This is turning into quite an expense you 're paying scientists you're you 're bossing the press around you're you 're repurposing all sorts of sensing equipment You are trying to find radar uh, that is designed for general purpose use um, because we you know very wisely designed radar to pay most attention to the things we actually want to look at, like airliners and things like that. I don't know. This just sounds kind of pie in the sky. So let's say we do all this. Let's say we, we implement a structure and, and, you know, there are smart people at the Rand Corporation putting together a way to do this in a practical manner that is revenue neutral. What, what happens? What's the outcome of all of this, according to Coker? After a few years' operation in this mode, it should be possible to study the resulting report statistics to draw generalities about appearance and behavior, and most importantly, to anticipate times and location of appearances. Only when this is done will it be possible to instrument sightings and therefore obtain the objective data so badly needed. Certainly, the conclusions drawn by NICAP from reports and their files are startling and, if valid, worthy of considerable scientific effort. It would be much more convincing if data could be collected worldwide and if the most interesting reports could be intensively and completely investigated. I believe current reports justified the expanded data collection and analysis effort. If we do all this, if we make all these changes to how some of our systems work and if we spend this money and if we organize this system, we will have a lot of UFO reports. And And investigations. And we might be able to discern patterns because we've already discerned some patterns from reports from organizations like NICAP. And it's, quote, startling and worthy of considerable scientific effort. So let's get more reports and do more investigations. And we would have to do this globally, worldwide. But how do we do this globally and worldwide? Yes, if we had more reports in the United States and more investigations in the United States, that would be great. But what do we do about the rest of the planet so what do we make of all this i I get the distinct impression that coker was a serious saucer fiend and this is all speculation on my part but this reads like a pitch to get rand's foot in the door of a ufo field that would have been transformed following the condon report if that report had in fact urged further study of ufos Imagine ufology in the 70s. Professor Coker of Rand advising the Air Force on setting up a nationwide UFO reporting and investigation system. Blue book on steroids. Or blue book done right, some might say. Do I think this approach would have led us to an ultimate answer of what UFOs might be? No, of course not. Uh, Because it's all… You know, space Bigfoot, right? But it's a fun little thought experiment, this different ufological world. It's sort of that, like that UFO handbook we had the episode about where it's like all these terms that were either obscure or made up just for this book. It's like a, it's like a ufology in an alternate timeline where things were very different. It's, it's fun to think about and the ufological world. If the Condon report had gone a different way is one of the most interesting. What ifs in American history, actually, I will, I will go out on that limb as to why this report never went anywhere. I I think it's, it's clear to me after reading it and and there's a link, you can read the whole thing yourself and, and form your own opinion. My opinion is this didn't go anywhere because the Condon committee issued their report and said, yeah, don't spend, waste any resources on this. If I'm at RAND and I'm in charge of determining which internal reports get worked up into rigorous peer-reviewed studies, I'm putting this one in a drawer and telling people, don't mention that we did this. For an organization as tightly bound to the defense establishment as RAND was at the time, there would be no advantage or benefit to be gained by crusading for a topic that your biggest client has successfully brushed under the institutional rug. Thanks for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Media LLC. Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.